Well, welcome to a new episode of the Front End Happy Hour podcast. We are still in quarantine, so we are recording remote, but there is some added benefit. In this episode, I'm excited we have a returning guest, Sarah Drasner, joining us to discuss complex projects and code bases. Sarah, can you give a brief introduction of who you are, what you do, and what your favorite happy hour beverage is? Sure. Hi, my name is Sarah Drasner. I'm Sarah Edo on Twitter. I am VP of Developer Experience at Netlify, not Netflix, which is (laughs) (laughs) confusing for this call. I also do a lot of open source work, including um, I'm a Vue Core team member. I also write for, I'm a staff writer for CSS Tricks. And um, yeah, that's, I think that's about it. I am the proud mom of two puppies. <laughs> and what are your puppies' names? Uh, well, I have one named Sudo, so I can tell yes. her Sudo sit, but she doesn't listen to me because I don't have root access. <laughs> <laughs> and the other one's called Beam, which is the Erlang runtime because my husband nice. loves Erlang. <laughs> but the next dog Love we it. get is going to be called Cat. Cat. <laughs> <laughs> That's so good. I love it. And then has your happy hour beverage of choice changed since the last time you were on? Yes, today we have Glenmorangie, which is my favorite. Um, Actually, I got it at the gas station down the street. I think they just had it for display purposes. (laughs) (laughs) They were like, don't buy that. I'm like, no, I I need it. (laughs) I really really want this right now. (laughs) All right. Well, let's also uh, give introductions of today's panelists. Stacy, you want to start it off? Sure. I'm Stacy Lennon. I'm a senior front-end engineer at Atlassian. I'm Ryan Inklub. I'm a senior software engineer at Netflix. Jem Young, senior software engineer at Netflix. And I'm Ryan Burgess. I'm a software engineering manager at Netflix. Not Netlify, Netflix. <laughs> in each episode of the Front End Happy Hour podcast, we love to choose a keyword that if it's mentioned at all in the episode, we will all take a drink. Now, what did we decide today's perfect keyword is? Complexity. 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 All right. So if we say the word complexity, maybe even complex, mm. we will all... Oh, Stacey's not agreeing. <laughs> <laughs> danger, well, danger. we'll see what happens. I mean, what else we got going on tonight? That's true. <laughs> That's true. All right. Let's hop in. I'm really curious to start it off with knowing how each of you like to ramp up in a new code base. Maybe it is something that's a legacy or you've joined a new company. So it's already been built. Maybe it's not just a brand new code base, but I'm, I'm curious how each of you ramp up and jump in. I really want to hear the answers to this because I feel like I am so bad at this. So I'm going to sit back and listen and learn from this one. <laughs> I, I, I actually, I do something that I inflict on other people. <laughs> oh, I like this. Um, I, I learn best by like recording and teaching, which should probably not surprise anyone considering what I usually do. Um, so I try to update docs while I'm ramping up on a code base. So like I look through the if there is existing docs, which sometimes there isn't, uh, ideally there is, but if, sometimes there isn't. Um, while I'm looking through the docs, I update them, or if there isn't any, I make them, and I do this to people who work for me. So <laughs> I, I make every member of the team go through and update documentation as they're learning, and sometimes people are okay with that and like into it, and sometimes people are not. (laughs) I mean, it makes it better for the next person jumping in too, which is good. 
because documentation gets out of date. It usually does like pay off in team productivity. Over. You know, it gets out of date. Code comments. Uh oh. <laughs> Are, are we picking fights now? <laughs> <laughs> it's I would argue that code comments get out of date because you're not maintaining them like you're supposed to because they're in your code. If code comments exist in your code, it's your job to either maintain them or delete them. I update my code comments, but I never touch anybody else's. Ooh. Why? Yeah, why not? I don't know. I just... I usually just skim right past them. I don't actually acknowledge their existence even. I usually just... But that's like leaving a sign up that's like... <laughs> I think I've just had enough experiences enter. where it do hasn't not do matched. This <laughs> I've had enough experiences where it's just not actually been remotely close to the code I'm reading. But that's I've the point. I just can myself. That it's is the point. Circle. They have to be. Yeah. <laughs> they have to be updated. Or you could delete them. I would. I would prefer that someone delete a comment if it's not relevant anymore than leave it around. I but do like, a lot of ideally, deleting. yeah. Ideally, you. I 100% agree. Like, I think comments are amazing, and you should be commenting, and you should be editing others if you've made a change and acknowledging those uh, changes in, with a comment. But I also have one thing to say about comments as well as much as they can be helpful but if you over comment meaning is like you write like a paragraph for some change people are going to ignore that maybe that's ryan some of your symptoms there too where it's like you've read it's like it's bloated and you're like ah this is too much yeah or it's like they're useless right like slash slash return a number something that doesn't make like yeah i could that i can figure out yeah i mean i actually have a talk on this um exact thing uh, because there are bad comments. Like, I think that we get, we kind of get on one side or the other of like a co code comments are good or bad, but there's, there are bad comments and there are good comments and we don't talk through the nuances there. Yeah. If it's repeating what's there, then that's annoying because you're reading it twice. Like that's so unhelpful, but sometimes code comments can be really useful for explaining the why, because code can always explain what but not the why. Yes, I, I didn't want to jump on this yet, but since Ryan's going to go ahead and start <laughs> start trouble a few minutes into the podcast. Why not? Yes, 100% agree with you, Sarah. Comments explain why, and code explains the how. Yeah. Uh, the best way I think about the, the best design system, especially when we're talking about complex systems, cheers, is, cheers. is your question, Ryan. When, you're, when you first started a company, and we've all started at a company at some point, and you're like, I'm smart. And then you get dropped into a code base. You're like, I have no idea what's going on. What's the ideal system that you want to be dropped into? Just like Sarah was saying, you want something with a good readme, because that means people care about other people on the, on the code. Uh, you want something with a lot of comments, because people's code styles differ wildly, especially in JavaScript, the, the wild, wild west of programming. The way I write, let's say, an asynchronous function probably looks completely different from the way Stacy writes it. And they're all valid, but you want comments explaining like kind of why you're doing it this way. And that really helps onboard a new person. And then finally, of course, what you want is a bunch of tests so that when you finally get ramped up and you make that change, you want to be certain that you didn't break anything. And that is an ideal system, something that you can just drop in and get, get going and you have full confidence in your changes and you understand exactly what's happening. Yep. I just dropped into a code base that had none of those things. No unit tests, no comments. Mm, um, very scary to change. I, I feel like I, it's the the pick two main. You get one, two or the two of the three. You can get really good unit <laughs> tests, and good comments. <laughs> you don't ever get all three. At least I have never seen a code base that has all three. So, Stacy, how do you approach that? 
Well, I was lucky enough to still um, know who wrote the code originally, and that person was still at the company. So I reached out and I said, here's the thing that I want to do. And then we pair programmed on it a little bit. So that was nice. But that's if that person's not there anymore and you don't have a way to get a hold of them, I mean, that then you're in a different predicament and you just sort of have to make the change and try and test it manually as best as you know how. But uh, yeah. It's still, it's, it's not, it's not a good place to be in. <laughs> that reaching out among a, like inside of a company is so funny. Like I've definitely showed up just like, you know, at a big company when you have to like go find their office and, or row of desks or whatever, and you sit next to them and you're like, so <laughs> <laughs> I have something to talk about and it's called line <laughs> 10,072, <laughs> where you did this. <laughs> Explain yourself. And they're like, I was under deadline. <laughs> I like that point, though. I think like when you can talk to people in, in your team or in the company to just better understand, I think that's always really a lot better. But even to your point, Sarah, I think another good point that I always think about looking at a new code base is being empathetic that there are trade-offs made is like you sometimes look at the code and it's not that great or something is weird and but there was a trade-off and there was a reason for that maybe they were rushing something out the door that happens to all of us and i, I know we even mentioned this in our previous episode that it you, you kind of have to get context of why someone took that certain approach and that it doesn't mean they're did a bad thing or a poor job on it, it Maybe they did, but it could have been just that they were trying to ship something quickly or there was some other dependency that they had to do that that thing, which would help having a comment of, hey, I had to do this ugly code for this reason. Yeah. <laughs> Jem's nodding his head. I see that. We, we, we had this exact discussion in the previous episode uh, where we talked about cognitive bias in software. And it's, it's our bias as engineers to jump to a code base and say, what the crap is this? Who writes code like this? Why would they do that? And they're like, it's it's really easy to be critical because I feel like when you're first jumping into a code base, that's what you feel is the most impactful thing you can do is kind of be like, hey, you could do this better. You could do this better. But really what we should do is understand why it was written that way. And is this the status quo? Is this a one-off? This is why comments help because they explain like what the business purpose of the code being this and this crazy reg, reg X was doing. But yes, <laughs> I, I've started a few companies, started at a few companies, and it's always scary when you're first jumping in. And my first thing is always like, who wrote this? Like, this is the wrong pattern. This isn't the modern pattern or anything. But when you're dealing with big legacy systems, stuff is around from six, seven years ago. And yeah, we might have been using React or something else. And it's going to look a lot different from the React you're familiar with. And you can just say, oh, this was... How could they do this? This is the wrong pattern. We know better than to spread props around now. But, you know, things change. It, you have to keep an open mind. So I'd say that if I'm first starting in a system, I try to keep an open mind. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, I just did a really large code conversion. And I one thing I kept repeating to myself is every line of code has a story, right? There's a reason yes. someone put that there. And there are a couple of places where I was like, what the hell is this? This doesn't make sense. I left it out of the conversion. And then two months later, there's a Jira Oh yeah, that's why that was there. When I first start, like the the story part that you just said, I if someone like the first few days. If someone's just like, here's some docs, go get your development environment going, get going. I don't, I don't want to do that. I want to talk to somebody about like, tell me this, like, tell me the story of like, 
how did this repo come to be and why are, you know, what are the right patterns that you can tell me like verbally are the right patterns that are, you know, we should use if there's a doc on that. Cool. But I've, it's rare that I've seen docs that talk about the patterns. Like Jim, you mentioned like, Oh, do react this way. Like there'll be like several ways of doing it in the code base and no one has like written down like, yeah, this is now how we do it. It's, it's like, talking to people. So I, f I find that really helpful at first. Jameson Dance, who uh, runs, he's one of the people who run React Rally, uh, did a really wrote a really great article uh, a few years back that talked about how when you're first joining a company, you have that feeling, but it's actually a superpower to bring up the things that might be glaringly obvious that people have just gotten used to. And we, you know, I've been trying to uh, push on that a little bit instead of it being like the the like, oh no, that's just how we always do it. Um, Cassidy Williams just joined my team, um, and we'll, yay, yay. Yeah, <laughs> um, and you know, I've been trying to encourage her to say like, let's let's use the fact that you aren't familiar with stuff to call out the stuff that isn't working, the stuff that is like, wait, <laughs> but why? Or like the the stuff that's bumpy that we've just gotten used to, um, because that's that's really valuable or even just like FUD, right? Like any kind of like fear, uncertainty or doubt that is surrounding any particular area is more easily surf surfaced when you're, you know, there's a certain drumbeat that happens at a company and everybody kind of gets on the same page of like, oh yeah, we like X, but you don't really know the non X if you're joining in. So it's kind of useful to check in with those pieces. Like, I love that. Uh, is just encouraging new people to have those questions and question those things because they are bringing a fresh perspective. Um, but another point too is that sometimes there's things that I think about where I'm like, oh, I would love to get around to using some latest and greatest tool or framework in our code base, but it's just like I haven't been able to prioritize that. And so oftentimes I've even had engineers on our team join and be like, oh, why why aren't we using this or that? I'm like, that's a great idea. We should do that. I know that others have thought the same thing and just haven't been able to find the time to do that. And if you're passionate about it, let's do that. Like, let's let's get let's move in on that, because I think that's easy to think of. Why haven't we done it? But usually it, it was just a trade off against the actual work that we're doing. And that, that's hard to remember to do as a manager, like depending on how tight your deadlines and priorities are stacked up, like you can't always have that. Sometimes it has to be like, look, we just got to ship this thing in the next two weeks. <laughs> and like, I appreciate your thoughts and opinions, but we got to go <laughs> like... So yeah, I, I definitely no judgment if you don't have the t the time and affordance because we've all been up against those product deadlines. Another one, Stacy, you'd mentioned coming into a code base with no unit tests. That can be a decent way to learn is add unit tests because you have to really understand how the code's working to write unit tests. And so if you're poking around at the code base, you can start to really just start writing some tests. It helps the team too, but also it can be a decent way to learn. The, the only thing I'd say about that, Ryan, is oftentimes getting the unit tests integrated with your build systems. And since it's 2020, we all have build systems can often be like a monumental task, like far outside your scope of being a new person, which, yeah, it, it's much easier to have like just one unit test integrated. in. even if you write no tests, just give the give people the ability to write tests 
if if you can, then having a new person write tests is a great way of doing it. I guess that was my naive assumption is that you can easily write tests there that, that people are just lazy and didn't write them. It's all in the build system. It's ready to go. Cause I a hundred percent agree with you, Jem, is that can be really a big task to just get that in the build system. Yeah. Depending on the system you're inheriting, you might just be screaming for the first week. <laughs> what is this backbone and angular? And <laughs> Why? <laughs> Five versions of jQuery, we've got Backbone, we've got some Angular in here. What's going on? All right, so here's a good question. At what point do you call this code base brittle enough that you need to rewrite? Like, what are some signals? Is it the fact that there is 10 different versions of jQuery and Backbone? And like, what point? What are some signals that you all see where you're like, I think we need to rewrite from the ground up? I think if you're (laughs) trying to build a new feature... And in that existing code base, and there's so much entanglement and multiple layers of technology that are conflicting with each other, that maybe it takes like longer to work through that than to build the feature. Like if your estimate's like, oh, this wouldn't be so hard if it was all one stack of things, but it's probably going to take me like 10 times as long just because I have to weed through all this code. That, that is maybe like a signal that something's not right. Also, like if you have to build abstractions on top of the thing that you're building and it's complicated, like there was one project at an unnamed company that I worked at uh, where we were building a system and that system had to get then get ported over to another system and be used for a slightly different purpose. So if the code wasn't clean enough to begin with, that would have been way more challenging right like you like it's it's tough enough to build something that can be ported over and altered slightly for a different purpose it's especially tough if you do have many different versions of jQuery going on and things like that. I like, Stacy. you kind of alluded to this, always a good time to revisit your code base at some point in time. Maybe it's, I don't know what the rule is, like maybe five years, I don't know. But to me, it's it goes to the point of when you're finding that you're slowing down. Because yeah. I think that the ultimate goal is what you're trying to do is build out new features, ship new product to your consumers. And if you're moving at a slower pace and it's become more complex, Cheers. 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 That's when you might want to rewrite. If you're working somewhere and you have a dedicated team or even a dedicated person that just works on the build system, you have a complex system. I would love people who just worked on the build. I've definitely worked at companies (laughs) where like it was nobody's job to work on the build system. (laughs) And then it was just like a hero's journey. Like you would like, (laughs) like it wasn't even part of product timelines or anything. So it would just be like, Frank did this on his Saturday and we love Frank now. We're all buying Frank drinks. Like it was just not part of anything. Like I I agree with you, but I also think that a lot of companies will have these kind of like pieces of the code base that they don't consider the code base because it's not product focused. And that tends to like we we've talked about this at a few companies about like how those types of configuration for teams can sometimes lead to tech debt because people are only feature focused and never pausing to that that type of tech debt just isn't owned by anyone is it helpful to have people to do that though like is it helpful where i mean some teams are too small to even do that but but even a small team maybe there's like four people is it helpful to have like one person dedicated to 
owning maybe the build system or cleaning up code and the architecture. I, w- I don't know that it needs to be one person's responsibility, but at least having some organization structure where there's a sense of ownership. Like during this time, this group is an owner of this. And this time, this group is an owner of this because otherwise it becomes a no man's land of waste where people pop into that. Or at least this is my experience. I'll just speak for myself where folks just pop into the system long enough to do one thing. And there even becomes a thing of like, don't do too much to fix it because then it will become your responsibility for people will always go to you from then on and then you'll have your regular job and a new job which is webpack <laughs> yes. i knew webpack was coming up at some point that should have been our <laughs> joking word. i don't know that might have just been at the companies that i worked at no that that's absolutely my experience everywhere else and i like what you said about people say oh code is for product and product alone and anything related to that is purely tangential i think build systems fall under that. Usually most build systems I come across are, well, it works and don't touch it unless you really know what you're doing. Otherwise, you're going to be the last person to touch this. So it's on you, like the entire thing. You're like, I changed, I changed one line. I actually just added a comment because I didn't understand it. They're like, it's on you. You you now own the build system. <laughs> I don't know anything about parcel. Uh, <laughs> I would say uh, testing falls under that too, as far as like, it's a reflection of the maturity of the organization if they prioritize like, is your build system up to date? Is your readme up to date? Do you have testing in place? Because that's not product focused per se. It is, but a lot of people think it's not. And especially the we're a fast, we're a scrappy, fast growing startup. Our code's not going to live that long. We don't have to do tests. That's cool. But there's a point when you say my system's complex and I probably should have some tests backing it up. But usually when that happens, there's like a major bug or outage. Cheers. Cheers. It's usually like an outage or something. It's something critical that precipitates the need for testing. Not someone comes in like, we should write some tests. Like, yeah, yeah, Sarah, Stacy, you you take some time and do that. <laughs> that never happens. It's like, oh, crap, we dropped production database because we have like no tests in place and no resiliency. And then something but happens. I 100% agree because like usually you work with like uh, for a product, usually you have like a product manager. The product manager is like, hey, did you write your tests? Did you, did you make sure that's good? They're They're not really asking you that oh i i was like who do you work i was like what (laughs) (laughs) no we don't have that no Um, but i do think that that's on engineers to help communicate that to the rest of the team and the rest of the team typically being a product manager maybe designers other stakeholders is really talking through why you need that time and actually setting aside time for shipping a feature and making sure that it is well tested i think to me it's just communicating the benefits to that and just help them understand that yeah, they're not going to come to you and say, hey, did you write a good test there? They're not asking that. They just they are hoping to ship their feature. Yeah. And I think even a project manager can help with that. Not product manager, but like project managers, I've good, really good ones are worth their weight in gold because they'll do little checks of like, yeah, but did you do everything that you need? And they won't necessarily say, did you write tests? But they'll say like, do you have enough time to make the sustainable code? Especially if you give an estimate like, I could do that in four hours. They're like, mm. 
you maybe could, but should you? <laughs> um, <laughs> so I, I've definitely worked with some really good project managers who kind of kept everybody in in check that way. They're not oh, it's not always like that. But I think also if there are situations where product and engineering work well together, where engineering can say like, hey, I need to- this time to work on things like tech debt and product says, okay. And I, I've seen that in action. In fact, I would say Nellify is pretty good at that. Um, I'm really happy to see how well product and engineering work uh, there. So it, it can happen. I know it's a myth. Like it's like this like <laughs> mythical beast in the meadow. People are like, does that exist? And they're like, no, I've seen one <laughs> in the wild. <laughs> you know what? I, I will plus for Netflix. I feel like I have actually found that we're, I feel we've been able to talk through those and product managers really understand that they they want you to ship a quality product. It's not just about shipping something quickly, but I think you have to explain that too. It's not just do it and not say, oh yeah, it's going to take me longer or I didn't get around to this. It's It's just bringing them along for the ride. So how do you make improvements to a code base that has basically become very complicated? I had to find a word not to use the word complex. <laughs> Cheers. 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 Very carefully. There should be some rule. There's like a is there a golden golden book of rules for engineering? Cuz one of them should be one always common your code. I don't care who you are, what language you are. Common your code. Two it is so much easier to make a system more complex than it is to make it less complex. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I, I'd like to hear everybody's thoughts on uh, yeah. how you actually do make it less we, complex. Is I'm that, going to get that tricky. tattooed on my, on my <laughs> arm. That's a really good quote. Gems Law. It's called Gems Law. Gems Law. <laughs> this quarantine shit is annoying. I want tattoos, so that would be nice. <laughs> and we find Ryan with just like a ballpoint pen stabbing himself. <laughs> Gem told me. I'm almost to that point. I used to have tattoo machines. I don't anymore. So what did you do with them? This is a whole topic. What? <laughs> I can't remember. It was around when my son was born. I was like, yeah, I don't want these around the house just in case. <laughs> Good call. Just in case you attempted to tattoo him. <laughs> No, <laughs> just just a little one right here. Now he draws them on himself with markers and tells me they're tattoos all the time. So. Aww. Can't you just take a road trip to Georgia? Right, they're tattooing now, aren't they? Yeah, I'm not. I'm not doing anything like that. Doesn't sound very safe. <laughs> all right, as 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 Jem says, com- comments are important. What else do we uh, do for complicated code bases? I mean, I I think what. What Jem is getting at here is really important. And in fact, if you read books on like refactoring, like the Martin Fowler book on refactoring is pretty good. And it kind of gets to this piece too of like, you know, taking something that's complicated and stringy and everything's attached to each other and uh, find breaking it down to its smallest bits so that it's, um, you know, as tangible as possible. And I kind of like the kind of the naming principle with functional programming that if something is too complicated to give a good name to it you're probably giving the function too much responsibility um that that resonates with me because i do feel like anytime i look at code where i'm like oh dear lord it's usually something that i can't explain in one name right and if i can start to break that apart into smaller functions smaller pieces of responsibility and uh it 
it starts to become a little bit more manageable where I'm even the legibility becomes a little bit more manageable where I'm like, ah, this thing does this, then this part does this, and then this part, and then they come together like so, <laughs> instead of like reading a really long run on sentence, basically. I think one thing you can do, it maybe it shows like a level of engineering maturity is if you come into say like a legacy or your older code base, um, and you have this temptation to to bring in like some new pattern or to like refactor more than kind of what you were actually your original focus was or what the task was to maybe just don't do that. Like it's especially if it's code that's like maybe not touched super often or it's not like very, I don't know, highly important, like just, you know, use the jQuery, whatever that's there and just extend it a little bit to do what you need and don't start adding a new pattern and adding another library if it's if it's not really that important to do it at that time. No, I was going to say restraint is a very undervalued yes. skill. Yes. Especially as engineers, and our instinct is just to build, 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 and modify. Not, not to understand what someone did before, because that takes more work. Like, let's be honest, I could write code all day. I could rewrite Netflix if I wanted to. But to understand what everybody else did before me takes far, far more work, and that's less sexy because it doesn't look like I'm actually doing anything. It doesn't feel like I'm doing anything understanding like what Ryan wrote versus like, I just deleted that because he didn't know what he's doing and I rewrote it all because that's <laughs> easier because I know what I'm doing. Are, are any of you um, thinking about what it's like to review the code that you're refactoring when you refactor? Because I guess I, I think about that time and again <laughs> um, because I am also reviewing code, right? And so the more people hand me like a giant honking, I changed everything in the world kind of PRs. I mean, I, I just don't, as a reviewer, you're like, this is never going to get reviewed. Like, I don't have time for it now and I'll put it off next week. And then they're like, why isn't this coming? Why is it stuck? And it's like, because I don't have four weeks to review your millions of changes. I hate that. Honestly, like anytime that so I get like a large PR or even a large email. This goes to email too, is it's like my response will take a lot longer. It will. It scares me. I look at it like, oh yeah. Like I might even like open it up, look at it like, yeah, yeah I'll get back to this. And I put it off because I, I feel like I need to set aside more time. So I think like doing smaller PRs is a lot better approach uh, is probably what you're kind of getting at, Sarah. Well, I think, you know, as you, as engineers go more into management, they start to see some symmetries between the management comms and the code things. I mean, I, I think that like, I, you know, I'm, I, as I do more management, I have emails where I'm proud of myself, the way that I was when I wrote <laughs> tons of code all day. Like, you know, I mean, I still write code all day, but like the, those I, I'm not expressing myself well. There's some pieces of communication that are similar to code communication where you don't put too much on the person or you know when things go badly that it's because too much was communicated at once, whether it be code or email. Yeah, it's it's being clear and concise. Uh, honestly, I think that easy to digest and being clear, not complicated, all that goes into writing an email or verbal communication or in your PR or code. I think it's all really trying to be, trying to make it easier for someone else to digest. If you have to over explain something, 
maybe need to rethink that. And it's it's good you mentioned that. I like the reviewing part when you're thinking about writing code or any large spaghetti-like systems. I'm avoiding the word as well. I <laughs> I I think of I call it the Twitter problem. Like I'm really bad at responding to emails. Like really, really bad. I'm sorry to all of you who've emailed me. I'm getting to it. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> But like, if someone reaches out to me on Twitter, I will probably respond much faster because just the brevity of the message, I can be like, okay, I get that. It's easily digestible. I can, re- I could respond to that. But when we think of large systems, it goes against our first instinct as software engineers, which is, I want people to see how smart I am. So let me refactor this giant block of code. I'm going to submit this 2000 line pull request and people will be like, yeah, Jem really knows what he's doing. Like, look at that code. It's so complex. I can't even understand it. He must be really smart. And I, I'm just saying for myself, because when I first started engineering, I wanted to prove myself as an engineer. And I said, that's the better way to do it. But that's wrong. It, it's small digestible chunks because you're thinking of like my teammates, like Ryan, who needs to review my code and understand it like quickly, because he's got a million other things to do. Like, that's how we should be coding. And that's Partly how you start to break down a complex system is like little bits. Uh, but speaking of the original question, I, I really love this topic because we're just going everywhere and it's touching everything. One way of simplifying a complex system, I'm going to say it, I'm going to whisper it because it's a dirty word and some of you may not like, like it. Microservices. Microservices. Oh, I mean, yeah. I'm definitely down with microservices. I probably want to. Cheers to microservices. Netlify? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Don't worry. You could put Netlify or Netflix and you're good. Your microservices exist. Net, Netstar. And our microservices are a double-edged sword. Mm-hmm. It's more the encapsulation of uh, separation of responsibilities that microservices give you. So if you say, I've got this large system, it's all, um, I don't know, Django, pretty common for a large monolith. And I want to break this up. You say, oh, let me break out the email service into, I don't know, Java running on Tomcat or something like that. And then you break those up into different microservices so that when you need to refactor in the future, it's much simpler. The danger of that is you have, uh, I don't know if I should say this, I'll call it the Netflix problem, where we don't have an architect. As Jafar Hussein famously said, there's no position of architect at Netflix because no one person could keep the architecture in their head because it's so complicated. It is insanely, insanely complicated. And then you end up getting siloed and then you have a different sort of complexity. So microservices aren't like the panacea that's going to solve all your problems, but they're a good start if you really know what you're doing. The one thing I really like about them is the clear ownership. I think like you can really have a defined ownership of a service, but also hire expertise for that specific thing and to me that is really beneficial of course like at a very small startup that is not possible you're just like wearing 30 different hats to get a feature out the door but in the world of a microservices that is my one favorite thing is like you know that service inside and out and there might be other services you have no idea what's going on and that's okay although i would i i would challenge that a little bit like it's not that you're wrong because you're definitely not um but uh, I've worked at small startups that were a few people that had microservices just because that, and that it, is true. You, the, the people go from microservice to microservice because that what they're doing is separating things out 
to keep things testable, to keep things reproducible, to make observability a little bit better. So there, I think that there's the human element of like, oh, if in a large, gigantic system, we have these like clear tiers of responsibility and we know what goes in and what we're responsible of coming out. But it's even beneficial sometimes in smaller systems because those that same thing that keeps the team working well can make the, the system a little bit more uh, reliable because you're not dealing with possible side effects that could come from the intermingling of them that you're you're just not sure about. Um, at Netlify, we're dealing with so many different ways that people want to deploy code, right? We've got people like Citrix on our platform who are deploying millions of pages a day uh, just for them. And then we've got people who are small hobbyists and people are trying, and this is not on Citrix or anything, but like every different thing is deploying things in a slightly different way. And there are hacks in their code base and there's all sorts of stuff. So we ha we have to step up to the challenge of making sure that things on our side are reliable and dependable, even if what we're given is not. And splitting things into microservices can sort of help understand, okay, we know that this was supposed to happen here and this was supposed to happen over here. And if that doesn't, then something didn't work. Um, so it can, it can be good for that as well. Such a valid point too. And I also think about the benefit is even if you are the owner of like, like I talked about it as more of the large company and you own one service, you know, inside and out in a smaller company own five or six services. And the benefit there too, I think about it is even if you are in a small startup is you're separating those concerns so that even if you wanted to migrate one service to, you know, update to some latest and greatest technology, you can do that. And as long as that contract to the rest of the other services is the same, you're good. Everyone's just like happy as can be. So I do think you're, you're right, Sarah, is that there, it's not just for large companies. It is even for smaller companies that you're just making things really easy, digestible, and really specific. That goes back to, I forget who brought up tests before but a test for a good art you know for complicated systems being a good piece to see you know any kind of thing that can tell you back like yep we've got it <laughs> and it's what what you think is happening is happening i think it was like maybe a little bit not a counterpoint to the microservices being a good thing for complexity but uh just that it it can you have to have some good documentation, like I think what Sarah said, like you have to have good infrastructure and and mechanisms for microservices to be successful. And if you don't, it can be like hard to know, like, oh, this thing is going wrong. What repo is that in again? Oh, that's in like, you know, like, oh, it's got split out and it's in this other repo way over here. And uh, oh, I don't have rights to it anymore. Oh, what am I going to do? It's like that kind of stuff can really make it complicated if you're not set up for it, right? Well, and also that communication is costly, right? Mm -hmm. Like even in small systems, big systems, whatever. Like, I, I don't know if you saw Dave Rupert put a tweet out where he was like, this is the best explanation of microservices I've seen. And it was like, this PM was like, okay, well, how hard is it for us to just add a birthday yes, here? Yes. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> that. <laughs> Because part of me was like, 
Wait, are these? Is this a real company? Because yeah. like it could be. Like, <laughs> like, totally. All the problems they listed are absolutely true. <laughs> I'm like, this sounds like one of the meetings I'm in. Yeah, like someone explaining to me. Like, oh, yeah. But it does also feel like that from the engineer's point of view when someone says, "Well, how hard is it to just do X?" and you're like, "Oh my god, <laughs> it's the most complicated." <laughs> <laughs> so before we jump into picks, I would love to hear. You know, we talked a lot about people uh, having. You know, all of us having to jump into old code bases, or maybe it's something that's very bloated. What's one piece of advice that you would give someone when they're jumping into a new code base that may need some fixing up or might have been a little complex? Cheers. 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 I liked what Sarah kind of mentioned in the beginning of the episode about just if there is documentation, like adding to it and correcting it as you go. I think that's just huge. If you're writing notes down about something as you're learning this new system, those notes are probably valuable to somebody else. So share them somewhere, even if it's just like a little personal blog that you have that you can point a link to somebody at and they can benefit from it. Like I just, I find that so helpful and I, th- I think a lot of people do as well. I would say, um, yes, plus one to, to read me's never met a read me. I, I didn't like unless it's out of date, keeping reading these out, out of, up to date is actually difficult. Uh, I would say this, and this one's hard because it's easy to say at a, at a company, companies that we work for, which are pretty open and collaborative. But when you're diving into a new system, it's a new person onboarding or something like that. Ask a lot of questions and like ask the hard questions. Like, why is this? Why do we have, why is our build pipeline like 20 steps? Why? And hopefully you have a team that understands and like, isn't like, oh, this person doesn't know what they're doing. It makes people question like, yeah, why, why is that the way it is? You don't necessarily have to change things yourself, especially starting out on your own. Cause you don't have kind of a, I don't know, the street cred to, to like push these large changes, but it's a good place to start to get the team thinking about these things. I would also say if you're an owner of the code base or a manager or something like that, have people own different parts of the system. That's kind of what we're talking about with microservices is just an ownership model of uh, Gems in charge of re- charge readme, OG Ryan's in charge of the type system, Sarah's in charge of this, Stacey's in charge of it. But like when you make people owners of parts of a system, say he he uh, owns the build system, it automatically makes it better because you have someone to go to every single time and engineers don't want to be bothered. So they're going to make sure that thing runs smoothly by the end of the day. But when nobody owns anything, that's what I'm like, I'm going to reach over here into PHP land and I'm just going to like import this real quick. And like you end up with spaghetti and you end up with this giant complex system that no one understands. I think the, those two are really great. I mean, well, first, the, like number one is survive, right? Like, <laughs> when you're <laughs> jumping into a, a really complex system, I think everybody like the, it's fun for us to be on the podcast and wax poetic. But if people are actually doing this in real life, like it's hard. It's just really hard and give yourself a break. Cause it like, I think there is that piece of you that goes like, am I the only one who doesn't understand why we have five versions of jQuery or like, you know, there there's this, this piece of you that's like, oh, I got to ramp up on all of these things and everybody else seems to know what's going on, but me. And like there, there's a bunch of stuff that goes on. So there there's that first level of just like, try to figure it out as best you can and not put too much pressure on yourself. Um, But the other, if you get past that stage and you 
feel like you want to go beyond that and you have the space and time, anything that you, any of the first PRs you can do that make other people's lives a little bit easier, you will earn more trust more quickly. Like if you come into a team and your first fixes are ones that the entire team's like, oh, thank God. I'm so glad you did that. Thank you so much. Like that actually does kind of set you up for success in the future. People remember these things because we're humans and stuff. So yeah, that's, that's my advice. I like that. I think one other thing, maybe this isn't specific to dealing with necessarily a new code base. Maybe it's just dealing with the code base in general. Learn to code defensively. Think about future use cases. I think about this as more of a collaboration too, is that you're not going to be the only one touching this code. And so trying to think a little bit ahead of like, how will this code extend? What other use cases can I think about? Maybe you don't necessarily code it for it in the moment there, but just trying to think about how it scales can go a long way. It's not, it's, it's not perfect. You're never going to think of a hundred percent of the use cases. Never. It's just not going to happen, but just put yourself in the mindset of, okay, this is what I need today. How will this help later in a future couple of weeks from now or a year? Yeah, I love that. It's great. I think one thing I would say is have an open mind. Um, you know, don't go in and start bashing the code or the person who wrote it. Uh, there's probably a reason behind it. And you don't have all that context. You may not have all that context. So just have an open mind. Be kind. Uh, find someone and ask maybe why, what happened, or, or why is this written this way, or just don't just assume that there was a reason it was written that way and accept it. Awesome. Those are all really great points for some good advice. At the end of each episode, we love to share pics of things that we found interesting and want to share with all of our listeners. Let's go around this virtual table and give pics for today's episode. Who wants to start it off? All right. I can, I'll go. Uh, two, well... It's, it's kind of three picks. The first pick is uh, a song called Leaving the Grid by Ital Tech. It's a, there's a really beautiful video that goes along with it, which is kind of like the part two of the pick um, by someone named Ruben Fro and does a lot of stuff with Unity. Um, and I think it's like film of like someone walking through, I think somewhere in Japan and uh, kind of, uh, destructured um, to go with the song. It's very, very beautiful, really cool, kind of chilled out thing um, to, to watch and listen to. So check that out. And then uh, this is a very kind of departure from techno, but um, in the 90s, I liked an artist oh. called Fiona Apple. <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> And she came out with a new album, and it's fantastically what? weird and what? amazing. And uh, "Under the Table" is one of the songs on it that I, I really, I really like. But yeah, it's it's a strange album, but it's also f- fantastic. So those are those are my picks. Man, right on. I have two picks. I don't have a Valley Silicon because I don't know. No one sent me any. I just maybe the world's just too depressing for me to make fun of the rich people right now. Yeah, but I got nothing. It's it's never never that depressing, uh, but I have two picks. The first one is a blog post. Um, it's called "On Being a Senior Engineer," and I found it really useful because it's a question that comes up a lot, and especially front end development, which has a higher percentage of 
at any given time of newer people joining because it's it's a more friendlier environment to kind of get started programming. There's kind of this misconception about what a senior engineer is, and a lot of people think they're the I don't know the John Reisigs, the like the rock star engineers who create some insane library and everybody uses it. And you're like, wow, that's a senior engineer. That's what they do. They code and they architect things. But really, a, being a senior engineer is many things, and one of those is just doing that non sexy work that the behind the scenes, the optimizing your build systems and making sure people can write tests easily and creating documentation and going out, reaching out to all the other teams and saying like, hey, we're about to update this. Does this affect you? Like that really unpleasant work that we don't think of as engineering, but that's what most senior engineers do. It's not code all day. And this blog post is just full of just kind of tamping down these misconceptions about what it means to be a really advanced engineer. Uh, I found it really useful. And I hope a lot of newer people read it, new people newer to programming, because it'll help guide their career path a lot better than just, I need to get better at machine learning and Rust and WASM and like everything else when there are probably like stronger places you could, you could, uh, you could spend your time on. Uh, my second pick is a Netflix and ESPN documentary called The Last Dance. It's about the Chicago Bulls season from 97 to 98. But really, it, it goes back in time, jumps in for, uh, back and forth and covers Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen. Uh, it is just fantastic. I am not a huge basketball fan, but it's probably one of the best shows I've seen in a long, long time. And it, it's just one of those, like, oh, I can't wait till it comes out next week because the drama in there is so real. And I think most people agree Michael Jordan's a pretty good guy. But like just seeing what made him that way and just his... I don't care. I don't give a crap who you are, what you believe in, or even how you act. As long as we win, that is all that matters. And like, we've probably never seen someone that competitive in our lifetime. And it just comes through. I I, I won't I, I won't say I'll give it away because this is from twenty years ago, and I'm old. But it's just just good television. Even if you don't care about basketball, just watch it a bit and see if it doesn't just suck you into the story. So the last dance. Um, it's on ESPN. It's also on Netflix outside of the United States. Yeah. The Dennis Rodman episode on that was fantastic. Like in, in the middle of an NBA season, he asked for a vacation to go to Vegas to go for a two-day bender. And they're like, yeah, go ahead. And he, he did. He went to Vegas and went crazy for two days in the middle of an NBA season. Wasn't it like a week? It turned into like a week. They're like 48 hours. And Jordan's yeah, like, yeah. he's not going to come back in 48 hours. And then it was that I, I really... I, we'll talk about this offline because, like, that was a really good episode. Yeah, good show. Sarah, what kind of picks do you have for our listeners? Yeah, I'm gonna do one that's dev related. Uh, uh, Tiny Helpers Dev is really cool. I don't know if you've seen it, but it is a collection of a lot of other tools that other people have put out. Um, I do little you know, demo tools that are open source every once in a while that can help people be better at X or whatever. This is a collection of all of those. So it's like um, things that Wes Boss put out, things that, uh, you know, uh, like a million people who you might not know the names of put out. And they, it's like CSS arrows or give me accessible colors or like brand color alignment or um, cheat sheets or even can I use is on there and like clippy things to do clip paths so like anytime you have to do something and you're like oh man I gotta go look this up 
that might be a good place to start because it's a really rich collection of all sorts of stuff that you're like, ah, okay, now I can make this thing really quickly and I don't need to read the spec for five hours <laughs> um, in order to get going. Um, so that, that one's really cool. Um, also, you know, we're in a pandemic, of course, so I, we're, we're watching more TV. I think previously we hadn't watched uh, The Handmaid's Tale because it seemed too, like, intense and insane and I didn't really want to be reminded of all of the those types of things and we started watching it and it's kind of relieving right now in some ways because it's the one sci-fi reality that's worse than what we're living in <laughs> now. <laughs> like you watch it and you stop watching it and you're like, oh, my life is really good, huh? <laughs> but I, I, I guess I also like, I like sci-fi stuff that's like, what if reality was just a little bit different and it's like a commentary on society? There's a, there's a ton of things like that, like Ender's Game and like other, I won't go into my sci-fi list, but uh, this one is fairly easy to binge watch if you're looking for something that makes you feel better about sitting in your house. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's a great pick. <laughs> Ryan, what do you have for us? Yeah, I can't believe my first pick I haven't picked before. Um, and it's the book Effective TypeScript. I've been carrying this thing around for probably three or four months now. Um, and I, it's starting to get a little raggedy because I've been taking notes and reading and rereading chapters. Um, so if you're writing TypeScript, this is a really, really good book with a lot of really good uh, pieces of information in there. So um, it's something I, I keep going back to months after I finished reading it. Um, and the second one, since we're in quarantine and gyms and everything are closed, um, I've been looking for a way to get some weights into my home gym, which is also my office, so I can't have a huge set of, of weights in here. Um, so I've settled on uh, purchasing this weight set called the Power Block, and it's 50 pounds down to five pounds in five pound increments, and they fit in this tiny little space. and they're really simple. There's not a lot of technology to them. It's just a, a magnet that you pull out and put in. So I know they're going to last a while. They're not going to break. There's not some you know, weird tech in there that's finicky. Um, so yeah, those are my two picks. Do you lift weights while you're on meetings? Yeah, I do. That's why I go off video. <laughs> All right, I have two picks as well. One to maybe help you enjoy some TV shows while you're in quarantine, though it's a little dark, so maybe it kind of fits with Sarah, your pick. It's the documentary on Don't F With Cats. It's one that I kept putting off on wanting to watch just because I knew there was cruelty to animals and I didn't really want to watch that, but I got to say, they, they try and avoid showing too much of that. And they really tell the story around the people behind the scenes, seeing this video and being like, this is bullshit. And like, we got to find out who did this. And they do this whole investigating, like just regular people trying to find out who this person is and looking for clues in the original video. The reason I really loved this story was I realized I'm, I remember this guy that killed this person in Montreal, like while I was living in Canada. And so this whole story plays out um, and just is really uniquely done in the, the way they follow the story. And it's the perspective of just these regular people online getting together and being like, we got to find this person. Who is it? An interesting story, but I, I did avoid it for a long time just because of 
yeah, it was cruelty to cats. I didn't like that. Um, One of my favorite internet memes about Tiger King is uh, it says the only person who could find out who killed Carol Baskin's husband, and it showed the lady from Don't F with Cats. <laughs> <laughs> that that works very well. Which I'm, I'm to be honest, I'm surprised that none of us I don't think have picked that Tiger King documentary ever yet. Too easy. It, I mean, it yeah. is too easy. I think the world has watched that one. But if you haven't, highly recommend going and watching that one too. I tried, but they had a, they had a, like big cat in the back of a van, and it was like the first scene, and I was like, I don't know, I can do this. <laughs> it is tough, right? Like, I, there's something about the animal cruelty that I just I can't watch. I think there's another documentary on Netflix that's about a young child getting murdered. I'm like, I just can't watch that. I did get past the the kitten one. Maybe I fast forwarded if there was anything I felt like necessary, but it was they did a good job of trying to avoid any of that, which is good. Yeah, maybe it's like an interesting commentary on me that I can watch human cruelty much easier than animal (laughs) cruelty. I'm like, don't hurt the animals. (laughs) Animals are way harder to watch. I feel like it is. It's so much harder. I get it. I'm with you. And then I, I, I thought I'd share a blog post I read. I don't know if anyone's familiar with the Spotify uh, squad model. Uh, Spotify has built like smaller teams, uh, basically like sub teams that are working in certain areas uh, of the company. There was uh, someone who had previously worked at uh, Spotify had wrote about why the squad model has actually failed. So there's some interesting insights there in the document that I, I really enjoyed reading through it. I think it's really in- a good one to think about how your team's structured, maybe give you some good insights. That's the end of our episode. And I wanted to thank Sarah for joining us on, I believe this is the third episode. So thank you again for joining us again. Thanks for having me. Oh, you're always welcome. Anytime. We, we didn't wait until the 900th episode or whatever. No, that was really funny. We did say that on your last episode that you're going to make it to 900. Someone had actually recently tweeted that. And I was like, yeah, I think she's going to make it sooner than that. So <laughs> where can people get in touch with you? Uh, yeah, Twitter is a pretty good place. Um, I'm Sarah Edo on Twitter. Um, I also have a site with a form, which is uh, sarah.dev. Um, I scooped that up early (laughs) and um um, also like yeah lately my team has been doing a lot of random posts on netlify blogs so not if you're interested in not just me but lots of brilliant people on my team there's uh there's lots of good posts like setting up stripe to do x and things like that and you have a lot of great people at netfly working with you so i I was gonna say the blog posts are good what do you call it? Like a, a super group? Yeah. It, it's kind of like assembling that every time. I'm like, wait, they got them? Holy yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, some, some days I join like a team meeting and I'm like, whoa, <laughs> I get to work with all these people. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that that they, it's not also like it's not like just hype stuff either. They're all really wonderful, nice, hardworking, smart funny thank you to all of our listeners for listening to today's episode you can find us on twitter at frontendhh visit us on frontendhappyhour.com listen to us on whatever podcast catcher you like to listen to podcasts on any last words you know i don't think you really want a complex cocktail i find the best (laughs) ones are like three or four ingredients at the most like you get to like five six seven they're usually not good i would agree fact So I think we have to cheers. 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 Cheers.